your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we want to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And I've entitled it, uh, Judging Others. Judging Others. And uh, you'll notice I did not uh, entitle it, Judge Not, because there is a place to properly judge. There's a place of sinful judging, that's judge not, but there's a place for proper judging. Lord, we pray now as we uh, get into the word that you would guide and direct us in our study for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen. As we uh, note on the overhead here, uh, the theme of the Gospel of John is Christ the King, and we are in chapters 5 through 7, emphasizing the uh, uh, Christ's judicial right to the throne, and we see this in his uh, uh, pronouncements, uh, seen in his wisdom as far as his kingdom teaching. And uh, today we continue on in our study in what is called the greatest sermon ever given, namely the Sermon on the Mount, as found here in Matthew 5 through 7. As we come to Matthew 7, Ed Glasscock says, Matthew arranges this section much like a series of Proverbs that provide explanations of kingdom attitudes and standards along with exhortations. It's kind of that, that feel. It's like, well, how, how does this flow here? Well, it's kind of like, well, you've got this proverbial truth that relates to kingdom truth. Then you've got this one. Then you've got the, there's a series of these things uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to realize that the backdrop for what Jesus is saying is seen in Matthew 5.20. This kind of governs a lot of what we find in the sermon. And that is Matthew 5.20. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a really important principle here. Jesus is presenting a contrast between godly, righteous living, born out of true repentance, emphasized in the previous chapter, uh, godly, righteous living, born out of true repentance and faith. He's contrasting that with the self-righteousness born out of external legalism as seen in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now keep that in mind as we come to this section on judging as seen here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. So let's pick it up. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now unbelievers do not generally know much of anything about the Bible. But it is amazing how many seem to know this verse. And quote it whenever they are confronted with moral compromise. They like to wiggle their, their finger and say... Thou shalt not judge. No, thou shalt not judge without any consideration at all for the context. It's like their get out of jail free card, right? We quote, quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not. You can't make any moral call uh, on what I'm doing whatsoever. And, you know, I agree with that. If it's just a matter of me judging, who am I to judge? But if I'm accurately siding with the scripture... It's not really what I'm judging. It's not what I'm saying. What is God's judgment call on this issue? Hey, let's consider that. Who am I? I'm nobody. Right. I'm not to judge, but God is the judge. And here's what he says about this. So uh, make the issue what, what, what uh, God says. I like Paul Washer here. He says, uh, people tell me, judge not lest you be judged. I always tell them, twist not the scripture lest you be like Satan. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there is a context to what Jesus is saying. And he is not saying do not judge at all. I mean, if you're going to go that far, you're going to have to cut out a large section of Scripture related to discernment, related to accountability. Even in this immediate context, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7, 6, that we will look at at the conclusion of our study today, do not give what is holy to dogs and cast not your pearls before swine. You know what? That requires a form of judgment, a form of discernment. And again, just a few verses later in this same chapter, in 7.15 and, and on, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. By their fruits you will know them. Again, that requires a form of judgment. After all, you might say, well, who am I to evaluate this? I mean, that's judging. No, you are to do that. This is your responsibility and mine as believers. So as we consider the context What Jesus is condemning is a certain kind of judgment, as we will see, namely egotistical, hypocritical judgment. Remember the Pharisees? They were all self-righteous and hypocritical as a group. Remember the story Jesus told, uh, the parable Jesus spoke in Luke 18? It goes like this. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And here's how the parable goes. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And we're zeroing in on the Pharisee right here. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And I always like the way that's stated. I mean, his prayer is really between him and himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oh, this is such a self-centered prayer. God, I just, I just love me the way I am. I'm so good. I thank you I'm not like other people. You know, those other low life extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. That, that tax, I'm so much better than that guy. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. There's a serious I problem, as you can see. No pun intended. Note the self-righteousness depicted here, uh, really indicative of those in this category of religious leaders who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, And in addition to that, they despised others. And uh, note those tend to go together. Self-righteousness, putting myself up, and despising others, putting others down. That's the kind of judging we're talking about in context here. People who put themselves up and they put others down. This is not to define Christ's kingdom people. The parable goes on to say, on the other, from the other angle here, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, he's, not thinking, he's not thinking about, hey, I'm better than anybody else, right? He's saying, I've got, my, I've got a problem. I'm a sinner. I acknowledge it. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself. Pride. Exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the problem with the Pharisee was his pride. Putting yourself up in a self-righteous way and putting others down is a matter of pride. This kind of hypocritical judgment rooted in pride is what Jesus is addressing. There is a wrong kind of judging, and there is a right kind of judging. And in context, Jesus is addressing the wrong kind. 
Notice what Jesus says elsewhere in John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there's a, there's a righteous type of judgment. Not hypocritical, but it's right. And then in 1 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. You're making spiritual discernment calls if you're lined up with the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual. You're lined up with the Holy Spirit's analysis. You're, you're evaluating everything. You're judging everything. Everything's coming at you. And you're evaluating through the grid of Scripture. That's a spiritual judgment. And he was spiritual judges all things. And yet he himself, you know, people that don't have the Holy Spirit, he's talking context about unbelievers, they don't understand. And so they're not, they're not understanding where you're coming from. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, test all things, hold fast that which is good. Some people use judge not like you should just not be discerning. That's not true. We are to examine everything. So a blanket all, judge not, does, does away with discernment and all accountability. And no wonder the devil and his crowd love an unqualified judge not. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Oftentimes what the world calls judging is really speaking the truth in love. Now we need to make sure that it is indeed shared in love and humility. But the fact is, the truth hurts, especially if you're not repentant. And those unrepentant don't appreciate the truth, no matter how loving it is shared. Note this illustration. Get out of the road. Trust Jesus. Don't judge me. And here's God's wrath boring down on them. Judgment day is coming. You know, if they really would see this reality, this would look a lot like what? A lot like love. A lot like I'm really concerned about you. Well, hopefully that's our motive. Uh, not a self-righteous agenda where I'm trying to put myself up above others. I mean, true humility in Christ says, you know, there's no holier than thou. Uh, we're just sinners saved by grace. That's all we are. Sadly, the world often thinks about any call to repentance as really kind of a sinful form of judging. But here is the real problem. Uh, notice in the context I was talking about, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 and 15, the natural man, that's the, the natural man is the one without the Holy Spirit, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. That's his problem. Doesn't have the Holy Spirit, therefore can't discern spiritual things. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. You see, the difference is the Holy Spirit. Believers think differently because they have spiritual discernment. They have the Spirit. The world doesn't have the Spirit. And therefore, they don't understand the difference between sinful judging and godly discernment. Which out of love warns people and calls people to uh, repentance, which means to have a change of mind about their sin and, uh, and align with the truth of God. Well, when God says, judge not, uh, when Jesus says here, uh, judge not that you be not judged, realize that he is speaking to Christians and their attitude in judging other people. We are not to be like uh, the self-righteous, hypocritical, egotistical Pharisees. Our whole attitude is to be different. So when Jesus says, judge not, it more literally is saying, stop judging. Stop doing this. Even God's people can have a tendency to sinfully judge. 
And I'm sure you've had this experience. Well, let's talk to me, okay? I'm sure I've had this experience where I made a call and boy, I found out that is not the way it is in terms of what I made a call on that person. It's like, oh no, no, there was a, there was a whole set of factors I didn't factor in here. Yeah, we all have that experience probably. We too still have the flesh, the old sin nature. And one way it constantly rears its ugly head is in the tendency to rush to judgment. Now what Jesus is addressing, I think, is what we commonly call a critical spirit. A critical spirit has everything to do with the spirit of things. And really this idea of judge not here kind of comes with a condemning attitude. And it kind of puts yourself in kind of the role of uh, superior, uh, that role that really belongs only to God. It kind of comes with a condemning critical spirit. Now, as believers in Christ, we are to be discerning in the right sense, uh, what sometimes we call uh, being a, a critical thinker. That is, we are critical of error. Uh, we are to love the Lord and hate evil. Uh, we are to test or judge all things. We are to earnestly contend for the faith, and the one who is spiritual does judge all things. And yet, in our evaluation of all things, we are not to develop a sinful, critical spirit. It's all about the attitude here and where we're coming from. As I say, it's all about the spirit of things, the motives behind uh, what is happening. A sinful, critical spirit uh, hypocritically nitpicks. And that's what Jesus is going to go on to illustrate. It nitpicks people apart. And you know you can do that with anybody? Did you know that? I think if you look you know, through a telescope, a large one, you could probably find a couple of things about me. I'm being sarcastic. It would not be that hard. You don't need a telescope even. And that's true for anybody. I could nitpick you apart too. Uh, and a, a sinful, critical spirit in pride tends to give self a pass, but sees the faults of others in a magnified way. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a critical spirit, but he does convict. He convicts, but he also comforts. And there's a difference between constructive criticism, that really wants to help somebody, which is shared in love as it genuinely seeks the other person's highest good, and that of a critical spirit, that is self-oriented and aims to tear the other person down. And in the process, the way I, I, I put myself up is by tearing the other person down. That's sinful judging. As we often ask, are you part of the demolition crew or the construction crew? That's, that's the question. Which, which crew are you with? Well, sinful judging seeks to tear down the other person and in the process, makes self look good. Makes me feel a little better about myself by, you know, looking down on that person. A critical spirit is egotistical instead of humble. It is uncaring instead of loving. It is self-oriented instead of other-centered. And it is legalistically oriented instead of grace-oriented. And it's in this sense that Jesus says, judge not. And note it carefully. Jesus said, judge not that, that you be not judged. We will be judged for sinful judging. We will give an account for this. And it's good to keep that in mind. Yes, we are to be discerning. Yes, we are to be fruit inspectors. But it's good to remind ourselves that we're not the final judge. In the end, God alone is the final judge. 
Yes, we judge with a small j, as I like to say. God alone is the judge with a capital J. Now, in the area of debatable things, Paul addresses this issue of judging in Romans 14. It's kind of on things that are not always so clear that, boy, we can be so judgmental. Probably a good lesson here in terms of this whole COVID thing. I mean, boy, we can, it's, it's amazing. Uh, believers say, if you don't think the way I think on this, you're in sin. And, uh, and everybody, it's amazing just talking to people. Completely different preset of presuppositions where I'm coming from on this issue, this issue. And, and then I reach this conclusion. Better be careful. Better be careful. And, uh, you know, grace needs to be exercised from every direction here. Not just one direction. Every direction. And uh, Paul kind of addresses this principle in Romans chapter 14. He says, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master, he, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. And then in verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Putting him down. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, who do you think you are? You think you're God? I mean, this is the role of God. He's the judge. Uh, these are God's servants who are going to give an account to God as, as I am. One time I had a brother judge my motives. And I know this because he said so. Uh, and he thought sure, and I think he still thinks to this day, he thought sure he knew my motives. And that I had some evil intent on the matter that he was concerned about. But really, he was completely wrong. Uh, my thinking was in a completely different direction than, than what he thought. It's always dangerous to play God. It's sinful. We don't ultimately know everything that is going on in another person's heart. We don't ultimately know their motives. That's God's territory. God knows the heart of everyone. You see, judging can quickly turn into the role of playing God. And that is sinful. It's egotistical to put yourself up in that position. That's God's position. It's hypocritical because none of us are good enough to function in God's role. Uh, we are to be discerning, but don't play God. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, kind of a sobering verse where he says, you know, the Corinthians were kind of tearing each other up. And we're more spiritual. We follow this one. We're more, and, and we've got these gifts and you don't have, and, and they're going at it, suing each other. I'm taking you to court. See you in court, brother. Next week, Wednesday. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, therefore, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. And what's the Lord going to do when he comes? Who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. It's all going to come out. The judge is going to reveal it. Leave it with God. Don't play God. Then each one's praise will come from God. So God alone is the rightful judge who will make the final call on everyone. And we are to leave final judgment with him. Warren Wiersbe says, we must not pass judgment on others' motives. We should examine their actions and their attitudes, but we cannot judge their motives for only God can see their hearts. It is possible for a person to do a good work with a bad motive. It's also possible to fail in a task and yet be very sincerely motivated. 
And so Jesus continues, verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now we know that God is the final judge. And as believers, uh, we know that we're not going to be judged for the penalty of sin. You know, I've often said on my deathbed, read Romans chapter 8 to me. I consider it, you know, my favorite chapter in all the Bible. And how does Romans chapter 8 begin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Praise the Lord. Christ at the cross bore the full price, the full penalty for all of my sins. I'm not going to, in a penal sense, give an account for any of my sins. Jesus took care of that. At the cross. That's what we're remembering at communion. Christ is my savior, not my penal judge. And not yours either. But we also want to remember, even as we, we often say, you're either going to meet Christ as your savior, you're going to meet him as your judge. And we're thinking in a, in a penal sense for sin. But Christ is still the judge of all. He is also the judge of believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive the things done in our body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We are not going to be judged in terms of the penalty of sin. Christ took all of that judgment. He made the full payment. But we are going to be judged in terms of rewards according to what we have done. Our works are going to be evaluated in terms of rewards and the believers are going to be evaluated, have their works evaluated in terms of condemnation. And so note uh, this principle in Colossians chapter 3, 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, still speaking to believers, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. This too is addressed to believers. Uh, you're going to receive according to how you have sown. Not in a penal sense, but the issue is rewards. Now we know according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that as their works are evaluated, some believers will, quote, suffer loss in terms of reward. Because their works do not measure up according to God's standard of reward. As they say, heaven will at once be a great eye-opener and a great mouth-shutter. And boy, I think that's true. I'm expecting to be true of me. I think I'm going to show up there with my mouth firmly shut and flat on my face. And the standard of judgment brought out here by Jesus is going to be according to how we judged others. Notice what he says carefully. With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. In that sense, we're going to be our own judge in, in the sense that he's talking. In other words, as I judge others, that will be the standard by which God judges me. Now that's sobering. That's sobering. If we were harshly critical, unloving, or unfair, that's going to come back on us. As Jesus says... With the measure you use, not my words, his words, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So let me ask us, what is the measure of judgment that you are using? 
What's the measure? Do you want it to be used on you on judgment day? When God makes the final evaluation of your life? I can honestly say there's sometimes this troubles me. I'm not sure I want that standard all the time. Uh, You know, the thing about being discerning, I like to think I'm somewhat discerning, is it can easily lead to kind of a critical spirit too. There's, There's a, you know, we still have the flesh. Sobering, isn't it? Makes you think twice about nurturing a critical spirit. Ed Glasscock says, If one shows mercy to others, he will be shown mercy. If one had a harsh and unforgiving spirit, his judgment will likewise be harsh and unforgiving. In the right sense. Remember, we're not talking penal judgment. Though popular Christian belief projects God as all-forgiving and assumes the receipt of undeserved favor, Jesus warned of consequences for being judgmental and inflexible towards the faults of others. Well, Jesus now goes on to illustrate what he's talking about, uh, this lesson on judging, and he does so with hyperbole and irony. Verse 3 and 4, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove that speck. Let me get that speck out of there. Uh, Let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. This is pure hypocrisy. Note that in this illustration, the speck and the plank are located in the eye. Related to vision. How do you see it? How do you see things? The speck is a a small splinter. The plank is a large beam of wood, a, a log. A plank, a log. Now, if you have a mere speck in the eye, you know what? You probably still have some vision, right? It hurts, but you still have some vision. You're not completely blinded. You have a problem, but you're not disabled in that eye. In contrast, if you have a log, if you have a plank in your eye... That eye is completely done. I've never experienced this, but I, I, the, the, the concept is, is clear to me. I can see it very clearly. Now, uh, yeah, I try. I'm, anyway, you can't use that eye. The vision is completely gone. How ironic that one with a plank in the eye, metaphorically speaking, should t- now try to deal with the speck in his brother's eye. This is ridiculous, as you can see. The person completely blinded by hypocrisy now nitpicks at the other person who's got a small problem. In other words, the person with the plank has a much larger problem than the person with the speck. And and yet the person with the plank is hypocritically critical of the person with a much smaller problem. Again, Glasscock says Jesus was rebuking the natural tendency to look at others and instinctively observe their faults, but refused to consider one's own one, one's own problems. To try to avoid seeing guilt in oneself by noting the faults in others is instinctive to the fallen human nature. And I think that is true. You know, uh, my kids were nigh unto perfect, but those peoples, boy, it's easy to see. Uh, and then somebody says the same thing about it. Well, but look at you. I always said I was going to wait until my kids were all gone before I wrote my book on parenting. And now that they're all gone, I've disbanded with the whole project. <laughs> it's so human. 
to overlook our own shortcomings and to exaggerate the faults of others. Boy, we can see that's a, that's a, that needs to be dealt with. Sinful judging. What does Jesus say? Hypocrite. Verse 5. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here Jesus deals with the essence of what he is condemning. That is hypocritical judging. The word hypocrite is interesting. A hypocrite is a player. This word originally describes a play actor who plays a role on the stage at a theater. The word hypocrite literally means one who wears a mask. A hypocrite, therefore, is a pretender who pretends to be something that he is not. He acts more spiritual than he really is. Hypocrisy is something that God hates and consistently is denounced in the scriptures. It was a key sin of the religious leaders called the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus denounced their hypocrisy with seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. I mean, whoa, 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 just hitting their hypocrisy. Gotquestions.org says this. A hypocrite may look righteous on the outside, but it is a facade. True righteousness comes from the inner transformation of the Holy Spirit, not an external conformity to a set of rules. The hypocrisy in view here involves a form of high pride. You see, again, pride puts self up and others down. This is what someone has described as the conceit of self-delusion. Pride is a blinding thing that prevents one from seeing properly. Pride is a blinding reality. So it's very fitting that Jesus uses the eye analogy to illustrate this hypocritical pride problem. It's very hard to see properly with the log of hypocrisy in your eye. And again, this hypocrisy is fueled by pride, as is described here. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, right? You have really put yourself up here. Because you're, you're really kind of playing God. God alone is the, is the ultimate judge, especially when we're talking about motives. Um, Jesus says the first order of business is to deal with self. Let, let's just kind of keep it to a, a self-analysis. Before being concerned about Anyone else's problem, our first concern should be to deal with our own sin problem. You know, when we come to communion, he doesn't say, examine everybody else and make sure they're qualified to partake, right? That's not what we do. Let a man examine himself. There's our real concern. Before trying to straighten out others, make sure you deal with your own issues first. First, remove the plank from your own eye. I always like this quote from D.L. Moody. I've had more problem with myself than with any other man. Yeah. Yep. I, I think before God, I have to say that's absolutely true. Not, not even close, really. Don't be nitpicking at others and their flaws. When if the truth be told, you have far bigger issues yourself. This is hypocrisy. First and foremost, deal with the plank in your own eye. The first order of business is our own faults. Now, it's so human. It's so human to be critical of others and at the same time to be soft on self. 
It's just natural. It's kind of natural, uh, kind of our, our, our idemic bent, our, our flesh bent uh, to hypocritically give self some slack. Uh, this is part of human depravity. To thine own self be true and be very gracious with yourself. That's part of being true to self, right? To thine own self be true and be very gracious with yourself. Well, having taken the beam out of our own eye through repentance, we are now in a position to help remove the speck from our brother's eye. And this is the place of proper judging. It's not to be done with a critical spirit, but rather in humility and with integrity. And this is consistent with what Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 6, along the same lines. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, whatever it is, you who are spiritual, in tune with the Holy Spirit, in step with the Spirit, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So there's to be no holier-than-thou attitude. We're all vulnerable. None of us are above being tempted. None of us are above falling. As Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Written again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Those who are truly spiritual and genuinely walking the walk, he says, let them restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness is reflective of humility, recognizing that we too could fall. And so Paul says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Anytime we're putting ourselves above others, we have a problem, especially when glaring egotistical hypocrisy is involved. This is a kind of judging that Christ condemns. Now, there is a place for correcting. There is a place for holding others accountable. But it should not be done hypocritically. And uh, there's no partiality. It's like, well, since it's my uh, son, um, we're not going to deal with it on this occasion, you know. But since it's your daughter, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead with churches. No, 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 no. Nope, nope, nope. That's hypocrisy. It should be done with humility and integrity. So we're not to judge uh, sinfully. But there is a place for proper judging. There is a place for taking the, the, the splinter out of your brother's eye. But it's not to be done from a position of hypocrisy. This is true in reference to fellow believers. But, it, but there's also a proper form of discernment and judging when it comes to unbelievers. And that's what he now deals with in verse 6. Where Jesus now goes on to say, after he said all of this, you might say, well, hey, you know, we're just not making any, any calls whatsoever, anywhere, anytime. That's unbalanced. You've got to consider everything Jesus is saying. And in verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So in bringing correction to fellow believers, as noted earlier, we must do so with the right spirit. But what about unbelievers? What is required here is wisdom. Note a couple of cross-references here. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom. Wisdom is needed. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, outside the, the fold, outside the family of God. Redeeming the time, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So walk in wisdom and, and, and be gracious. 
And then here in 2 Timothy 2, 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, in humility correcting. No, there's a place for correcting, trying to, to bring them to where they're on track, but in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So our approach to correcting unbelievers is to be one of wisdom, graciousness, and humility. However, Jesus here in Matthew 7, 6 brings out that there is a time when you don't share at all with unbelievers. There is a time to hold your pearls of truth and not cast them at all. Just hold them. We don't always have to try and bring about correction. We don't always have to say, well, hey, let me deal with this problem of yours. Let me throw myself right in the mix. Sometimes it's not wise. And this, again, requires discernment. This involves a proper judging of the situation and the people involved. The Didache, by the way, this is just a a footnote. The Didache was an early manual addressing uh, Christian living written around A.D. 100. So it's very early in the church age. And the Didache says this, which is an interesting statement. "Let Let none eat or drink of your Eucharist, that's communion, except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. It was concerning this that the Lord said, do not give dogs what is holy. Well, (laughs) certainly by way of application, unbelievers should not partake in communion. But pretty much across the board, all of our evangelical scholars would say, this is not what Christ is saying here. This is not what he's addressing. This context has nothing specifically to do with communion. It's much more basic in the sense That in some situations, we are not to share the truth at all with those who are here called dogs and swine. Which, by the way, I'd be very reluctant to call people out on that. (laughs) What is holy perhaps refers, and a lot of uh, commentators think this, uh, what is holy perhaps refers to sacrificial meat. For the Jews under the law, some sacrifices involved sharing in a fellowship meal. And it would have been considered sacrilegious to share such meat with dogs. Consistently, in the Bible, the pearls are shown to be gems of great value. Uh, Ed Glasscock again says, In verse 6, the holy and the pearls refer to God's truth and kingdom standards. Those who are disciples of Jesus are not to take the precious truth of God and cast it before dogs and swine. You see, in the Bible, both dogs and pigs were unclean animals for the Jews. In the Bible times, dogs were rarely domestic pets, as is so common today. They were largely half-wild mongrels who acted like scavengers. Uh, They were dirty, snarling, often vicious and diseased. They were dangerous and despised. Swine in the Old Testament were considered by the Jews to be the epitome of uncleanness. When Antiochus Epiphanes offered up a sow on the altar at the Jewish temple, it was the height of outrageous blasphemy. So both pigs and dogs were derogatory terms used by the Jews to designate unbelieving Gentiles whom they considered to be unclean. 
Now, consistently in the New Testament, these terms are used metaphorically to depict the wicked and the vile who refuse to repent. Let me uh, show you. In 2 Peter 2, 21-22, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. He's talking about the, the holy commandment of the gospel. And the gospel comes with a command to repent and believe. But it, has been, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So Peter proverbially refers to those who having known the gospel then turn from it as being like a dog who returns to its vomit or a sow to her wallowing. You see, both have an unclean nature and being unchanged go right back to what is according to their nature. The dog in the south. It's the nature of the dog to eat the vomits. It's a, and, and, you know, you clean that dog up and fine. He's a nice dog, man's best friend, of course. But he's still got a dog nature. And the sow, you know, get him all cleaned up for the fair. Looks good. Bring him home. Goes right back to the mud puddle. No change in nature. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul uses this. Beware of dogs. He wasn't talking about the four-legged guy. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Paul here is referring to the legalistic false teachers known as Judaizers. He calls them dogs. They were spiritually dangerous and unclean. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. But outside, he's talking about the outside of the city of the New Jerusalem. Outside the holy city, outside the eternal home of the believers, outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Outside this, the holy city of the new Jerusalem are spiritual dogs. In other words, people never cleansed from their unclean sinfulness. These are people that never repented of the disgusting vices that God hates, as the verse goes on to say. Note how the characterization, uh, characterization here uh, says that those who refuse to repent of their vileness are dogs. And therefore it is inappropriate to serve them in what is holy. The swine have no appreciation for the pearls. They just don't value them at all. And if you cast them before the swine, they become irritated. They trample them under their feet. And they turn and tear you in pieces. They are not open to the value of kingdom truth. So don't push it. They will only seek to abuse you for it. In such a case, don't even go there. Don't force it. Don't seek to apply the correction of truth in such a case. Don't cast your pearls. Hold them. Jesus applied this principle in... Matthew 13, 58, when it says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When the Jewish leaders blasphemously rejected Jesus, he then withheld the truth from them and spoke in parables. In Luke 23, 9, Jesus refused to talk to Herod. In the book of Acts, we see Paul turning from those who refused to hear the word. Uh, he went to the Jews first, but when there was blasphemous rejection, uh, Acts 13, 46... 
Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Notice the, the element of personal accountability here. <laughs> you judge, you've made a judgment call here, but uh, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then later in Acts 18, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. No more casting these pearls. Nope. I like this little story from J. Vernon McGee. I remember a Tennessee legislator friend of mine who was a heavy drinker. He was wonderfully converted and is a choice servant of God today. This is back in the day. Uh, The other members of the legislature knew how he drank. Then they heard he got religion, as they called it. One day, his fellow, his fellows, uh, one day this fellow took his seat in the legislature, and his fellow members looked him over. Finally, someone rose and addressed the chairman of the meeting and said, quote, I make a motion that we hear a sermon from deacon so-and-so. Well, everyone laughed. But my friend was equal to the occasion. He got to his feet and said, I'm sorry, I do not have anything to say. My Lord told me not to cast my pearls before swine. <laughs> Oh boy, that took some boldness. <laughs> William McDonald says, When we meet vicious people who treat divine truths with utter contempt and respond to our preaching the claims of Christ with abuse and violence, we are not obligated to continue to share the gospel with them. So sure, we want to share with everybody. And the Great Commission is to take the gospel to everybody. But there are some doors that are closed. People judge themselves unworthy, and, and we shake our garments and we move on. We, we don't continue to cast our pearls. A footnote here, many contemporary Christians seem to think that the mission of the church is somehow to push for kingdom standards in the here and now, and to push for social changes in society. They think it's really the job of the church. And this is a, the major battle. You know, we had the major battle back in the day with the fundamentals over the, the social gospel. What goes around comes around, and we're right back there today. It's the major issue of the church. What is the gospel? What is the mission of the church? Well, uh, they think the job is uh, for the church to reform society so that it aligns with kingdom standards. And that never works because the coarse culture of society, you see, is filled with dogs and swine. And to force it only brings abuse and blasphemy. There's some wisdom principles here. Uh, Proverbs 9, 7 and 8, He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you for it. You know what? This requires some discernment here. Sometimes you just just keep keep quiet. Usually we're saying, talk, 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 pray for boldness to open your mouth. Yeah, that's true too. But then there's a place where this is not wise. Proverbs 23, 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Again, Glasscock says, this certainly does not mean that believers should not speak out against evil, but it is a warning against attempting to make a fallen world conform to the standards that cannot be understood or appreciated. The intent of evangelism is not to make the world a better place, but... And he says, but that would be a blessed consequence. But to save people out of this present evil world. When it comes to judging other people, we must ever remember that we are not God. Yes, there is a place for correcting others. 
in a helping sense, in a place of accountability within the family of God. But it's not to, but it is to be done in humility and with integrity. There's no place for egotistical, hypocritical judging. And when it comes to unbelievers, we are to be wise in the matter of correcting or confronting. We are to seek to share the gospel with all people. But when it comes to those hardened in hostile rejection, we are not to cast our pearls before them. It's counterproductive. Well, when it comes to judging, number one, don't play God. There's only one God, and you're not, you're not him. I'm not him. Judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. Be harder on yourself than anybody else. Judge yourself first and then judge others with humility, care, integrity, and wisdom. Good questions to ask are these. Is my judging driven by a self-oriented critical spirit or by a discerning spirit governed by love? And then the other question, am I part of the demolition crew or the construction crew? As I said earlier. Finally, this back in 2019, the Supreme Court ruled on the question. The question was this before the Supreme Court. May a federal court count the vote of a judge who dies before the decision is issued? Well, the Supreme Court ruling came back and said, quote, Federal judges are appointed for life, not for eternity. <laughs> that, that's true. Just remember this. All the judging done by humans will one day be examined by the one and only eternal judge. And the rendering of the eternal judge will stand forever. His verdict is forever. Well, God help us to live according to these principles and this balance is brought out in the scriptures. Let's stand and have our concluding song. Ten minutes.